And as Will mentioned a few moments ago, we're beginning a new um, series in God's Word this morning. It's called Looking for a Leader, and it's from the Old Testament book of First Samuel. And this morning, uh, we'll be looking at the question, does God care, from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. I'm going to ask um, Debbie Brunsman now if she could come up and uh, read God's Word for us. Thanks, Debbie. Okay, this morning we're reading from 1 Samuel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Penina. Penina had children but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty of Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. But the Lord had closed, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. When Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, but her lips were, move, uh, her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Eli replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. 
So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I ask of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There's no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of warriors are broken but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who pose, oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Thank you very much, Debbie. 
So then, uh, one of the books which I have been uh, reading recently is um, the one there on the screen. It is called Command, and it was uh, written by somebody in the UK called Al Murray. And this is basically a book about some of the different leadership styles of the generals in World War II uh, and their sort of respective uh, strengths and weaknesses. And so you might have one general, for instance, who was uh, um, successful and effective because he was just really, really organized. Or you might have another general, and uh, he was somebody that really had the ability to inspire his men um, so that they would press on towards victory. Or you maybe have another one who was just somebody who was really, really determined uh, to get the job done, or that they had the ability, perhaps, to think outside of the box. And uh, all of those, of course, are really good leadership traits to have. But what stands out most for me about the book was really the way that ordinary soldiers really care about who their generals were. Ordinary soldiers really cared about who their generals were, who they served under. And I guess it's really obvious, right? Uh, if you are an ordinary soldier, then you are going to care about who is actually leading you. I mean, it might literally make the difference between life and death. If you get a bad general, well, that might mean defeat and capture or even death. If you get a good general, on the other hand, that, that might mean you're, you are well fed, you are well provisioned, uh, you're well cared for, and you have a much greater chance of staying alive. You want to be able to trust the person who's leading you. Leadership matters. I'm sure that uh, many of you listening to me this morning will agree uh, you are probably people that care about leadership. If you are a leader yourself, maybe at school, maybe in the workplace perhaps, then you will probably care about what kind of leader you actually are. You probably also care about um, good leadership, uh, whether that's at work, whether that's in sports, uh, whether that's even politically. Uh, many of us here will also care about uh, good leadership in the local church as well, maybe even this particular local church at uh, this period of looking for a new senior pastor uh, and being in a time of transition. Well, the really great news of our passage this morning, and actually the whole book of 1 Samuel, is that God also cares passionately about the leadership of his people God cares that his people are led well, and he himself is the one who raises up leaders for them. He is the one who is to be acknowledged, actually, as their ultimate leader. Uh, the book of 1 Samuel is really a book about transition. The era of the Old Testament judges is about to end, and God's people are now transitioning to having a king to rule over them. And here, right at the start of the book, there's actually something of a national crisis which is going on. Um, if you know anything at all about the book of Judges, which is really the book uh, historically that precedes 1 Samuel, then you probably know that uh, the book of Judges is a book that ends with moral and spiritual chaos. Uh, the very last verse of the book is Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, where we read these words, in those days... Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. This is meant to make pretty grim reading for us. Israel had no king, had no leader. There was a leadership vacuum, we might say. And so everyone just did 
what they wanted. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, as one of the older versions of the Bible puts it. And so this is not good, uh, but this is the situation when 1 Samuel begins. And so really the, the question uh, hanging over these opening chapters of 1 Samuel is really this. Does God care? Does God care about the moral and spiritual crisis that his people are in? Does God care how they are led? Uh, and if so, then uh, what is God going to do about it? Well then, uh, with these questions in mind, let's get into our story, uh, which starts in a most unexpected place with a woman called Hannah. And so, uh, number one there in your outlines, we see a woman who weeps. So almost everyone agrees that the books of 1 and 2 Samuel start in a really strange way. I mean, if you think about it, this is, is a story that goes on to talk about King David and King Solomon, you know, two of the biggest names in the whole of Israelite history. But yet it starts with this really obscure family who nobody's ever heard of, uh, who live in the middle of nowhere. And so verse 1, therefore, uh, introduces us to a certain man called Elkanah and his two wives, Penina and Hannah. And we're told in verse 2 that Penina has children, but yet Hannah has none. The whole point here is that this is basically an unheard of, insignificant family in an impossible situation. Uh, I can remember a number of years ago when I had the time and the bandwidth to be doing this kind of thing, going to see a Jewish arts film called Kadosh, uh, which actually means holy. And uh, there was a film, and uh, this was a film about a modern sort of ultra-Orthodox Jewish family living in Jerusalem. Uh, the main character in it is a man who was persuaded to divorce his wife and then marry someone else on the basis that his first wife couldn't have any children. At one point in it, he um, says to his wife, a woman who cannot have children is not a woman at all. I think that's a very helpful line to take us into the experience of Hannah here. Um, culturally, uh, a woman who cannot have children uh, is not a woman at all. Hannah may have had a husband who loved her in the person of Elkanah, but nothing could compensate poor Hannah for the fact that she was unable to have children. So we're told multiple times here she was filled with grief. It was something actually that hit her right at the heart of her identity. Uh, in the culture of the day, uh, her worth was pretty much tied up with her ability to have kids. Uh, Hannah couldn't do it. And so she was regarded as something of an outcast. And I'm sure some of you uh, listening to me this morning may know something of the pain of childlessness um, for yourselves. And then all of this was made worse by the attitude of Elkanah's second wife, Penina. So the implication here is that uh, after a while, Hannah wasn't able to conceive, and so Elkanah took a second wife. Uh, she was able to conceive, and it seems as, as if Penina had many children. Uh, every year, they'd head up to a big religious festival up at the tabernacle at a place called Shiloh. And in verse 4, it says that Elkanah would give portions of meat to Penina and all her sons and daughters, uh, implying that there were lots and lots of them. And so Penina would taunt Hannah and uh, make her life a misery. I occasionally wonder what it would be like if they were at a modern Christian conference. 
Now you can almost imagine uh, Panina picking up all her children from the kids program. Oh, it's just so stressful, Hannah. I can't imagine how I'm going to get all of those kids back to our accommodation and get them all food. Maybe, Hannah, uh, you could give me a hand. Well, all the time, uh, Hannah is going to the seminars on coping with disappointment and uh, things like that. You see here, Panina is the one who looks strong. Panina looks successful. Um, Panina's one with the kids. She is ungodly, but she actually looks blessed. Hannah, on the other hand, is the one who is godly, but yet she appears to be weak and insignificant and unblessed. She's the one who's suffering, uh, and it looks like she's rejected by God. In some ways, I think Hannah here is really meant to be a picture of Israel in microcosm. Uh, Previously in the book of Deuteronomy, God had said that if his people were faithful to their covenant with him, then there would be no barren women in the land. That's Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 14. And so the fact here that Hannah is barren is really meant to be for us uh, a picture of a nation far from God. She kind of is a personification, if you like, uh, representing Israel. See, Hannah's barrenness and anguish is really the anguish of a nation and a people who are separated from their God. The plight of Hannah points to the plight of Israel as a whole. But then there are also some glimmers of hope here as well. I wonder if you were able to spot any of them uh, as this was being read for us. Uh, I think there's one glimmer of hope there in verse 5 and verse 6 when it says that it is the Lord who has closed Hannah's womb. But if it's the Lord who's closed Hannah's womb, then presumably it also means that the Lord can open it as well. And so there is hope. Then if you know your Old Testament history, then you will know that we've encountered a number of barren women before. Uh, One obvious example might be Abraham's wife, Sarah, uh, who was unable to have children, but yet God miraculously opened her womb to have a son uh, when she was over 100 years old. We might also think of someone like Rebecca or maybe Manoah's wife in the book of Judges, both of whom were barren, but yet they gave birth to children who were actually instrumental to God's plans. In all of those cases, the common theme was that the women were barren, but yet their children became central to what God is doing in the world. And so here I think we are meant to start to begin to join the dots. It's true that this is an impossible situation. Hannah is weeping. Everything looks desperate. But yet there's also a hint here that God is on the move. God hasn't forgotten his people after all. He has used barren women before, and maybe God is about to do it again. He's not done with his people yet. I think one lesson here for us is that God specializes in upending the expectations of the world. God specializes in upending the expectations of the world. Where do we expect God to be at work in the world? Well, in the culture of the day, right, it was Penina. Uh, she's the one who looks impressive. She's the one who looks blessed. She's the one with the kids. She's the one who appears to be strong. She's the one who appears to be confident. But God would say, don't be fooled. It's actually Hannah 
the one who is weak and upset and who's over there crying in a corner. That's where I'm really at work. It's in the people and circumstances that you might not expect. God upends the expectations of the world. As we'll see later on when we come to chapter 2 and Hannah's great prayer there, it is the Lord who brings life out of death. It is the Lord who exalts the poor and the humble. And it's the Lord who humbles those who are rich and powerful and are self-reliant in their own eyes. This is actually a huge theme as we begin to go through the book of 1 Samuel. Later on in 1 Samuel, of course, it is King Saul who looks really, really impressive. We are told that um, you know, Saul was head and shoulders above everyone else in all Israel. After Saul, who's the other guy in 1 Samuel that looks really impressive? Well, of course, it's Goliath, right? He looked really, really impressive. He was really big and had all the modern weaponry uh, that you could ever possibly need. But yet God brings both of them low. And it's actually David, the shepherd boy, the one who is sort of left on the hill attending his flocks. Uh, he is the one who God will ultimately use. See, God upends the expectations of the world. Appearances um, are not everything. If you're here and you aren't a Christian this morning, I wonder where you look to see God. Might it be that God has revealed himself in the places and in, through some of the people who you might least expect? Maybe even those who you look down on. Maybe those that you think of as being weak. Maybe those that you think of as being powerless. Maybe those that you would even naturally despise. Um, maybe those are some of the people that God is using to actually speak to you and to uh, reveal God to you. Um, where do you look um, if you want to see God? So that's uh, the first thing I think that we see in this passage, that God's leader comes from a woman who weeps. But then we need to move on, because we also see here a woman who prays. And this is really the next thing that we see in this story. You may remember that Hannah's filled with weeping and anguish because of her childlessness and Penina's taunting. And all this really raises the question for us, well, how are God's people to respond in the difficult circumstances of life? And I think we see a couple of temptations here. Um, one temptation um, might be what we would call resignation. So this is where we're sort of passively resigned to the will of God. Whatever will be, will be. So I guess in Hannah's case, she could have said, well, it's the Lord who's closed my womb. There's no point in me doing anything. I just need to accept it and just get on with life. Say a fatalistic response where we're sort of just resigned to our lot and there's no point in really doing anything about it. So we have uh, one temptation, which might be resignation. Uh, I suppose another one for us could be what we would call resentment. So this is where we would get bitter and resentful against God because of the way that our lives have worked out. Things didn't work out in our lives as we would really want. Uh, in, in Hannah's case here, it would have been so easy for Hannah to have blamed God. God has closed my womb, and therefore I'm now going to rail against him with everything I've got. If this is how God has treated me, I don't want anything to do with him at all, and I'm simply going to walk away. However, notice that Hannah here responds by praying. She moves 
towards God. She goes to God in prayer. She takes her feelings and concerns and requests to him. So if you sit there on your outline, say in verse 9, we see that Hannah is active. It says that she actually gets up. She stands up. She makes an effort to go and pray to God. In verse 10, we see that she takes her feelings and emotions to God. So verse 10, um, in her deep anguish, um, Hannah prayed to the Lord, it says, weeping bitterly. In verse 16, a little bit later on, Hannah says, I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Again, it's meant to be a great example for us this morning. Often when bad things happen to us, we can just be tempted to bottle our emotions up. But here we see that Hannah expresses her feelings and her emotions to God in prayer. We also see here that Hannah makes a vow to God. So verse 11 Uh, It says, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you would only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, I know that this might look like Hannah is trying to strike some kind of bargain with God. I guess we've all um, tried to do this. Lord, if you help me pass my exams, then I'll be in church every week and I'll worship you for the rest of my life. But actually, I don't really think that's what's going on here. Uh, I think we need to remember that this instance is unique. I think this is the only time we get a vow like this in the Bible. And then I really think that this is just simply uh, a measure of Hannah's devotion and love for God. She acknowledges that all that she has comes from God, and so she will offer back to him just what he's already given to to her in answer to prayer. Um, We also see here that she prays to God on the basis of God's character. So one thing that may not be immediately obvious here to us is all of the vocabulary from the time of the Exodus. So when Hannah prays that God would look on her misery and that God would remember her, that God would not forget her, that God would remember her affliction, Uh, that's all actually language that Moses used at the time of the Exodus. It's almost as if Hannah's saying, Lord, you've rescued your people before, you've had compassion on them before, now do so again. Love, look on me and remember me as you remembered your people of old. She prays to God on the basis of his character and what she knows about God to be true. It's really a reminder for us that God loves us and he cares for us and he looks at us with compassion. He looks, he sees, he knows your misery, whatever that may be this morning. And so this is an encouragement for us to bring our petitions to him in prayer. Um, One person who did not, it seems, understand what was going on, was old Eli. So in verse 9, he's seated by the doorpost of God's house, um, not particularly active. Uh, Notice that there's meant to be a contrast there with uh, Hannah. Hannah stands up and does something active and goes off to pray. Where is old Eli? Well, he's uh, taking a um, seat at the entrance uh, to God's house. Uh, In in verse 12, uh, Eli sees that she's moving her mouth in prayer. What does he think? He thinks she's 
drunk. Uh, she's been drinking too much wine, may, maybe, at the religious feast. Uh, I think it's maybe a little bit like if you're in certain neighborhoods, maybe in some countries in the world, and you see someone walking around and their lips are moving, their mouth is maybe moving, you might just assume that they were on drugs. It's exactly the same here. Uh, I think the spiritual state of the nation, we're being told, is actually so low that when Eli sees somebody um, with their lips moving in the tabernacle, what does he think? He just assumes that they are drunk. Again, you see, Eli is meant to be a picture of the leadership of Israel as a whole. whole. He's old, he's blind, and he clearly lacks spiritual discernment. He can't tell the difference between a woman pouring out her heart to God and someone who is drunk. He's not a very good pastor. Um, Don't choose Eli to be the next senior pastor of Ambassador. You see, it's meant to be a sad indictment on the people of God. And we'll see more about this uh, next week when we come to look at uh, Eli and and his two corrupt sons, Hopni and Phinehas, uh, in more detail. I think the big point here for us is that, like Hannah, um, in the difficult circumstances of life, we are to learn to lean on God. Don't give in to resignation. Don't give in to resentment. But rather, bring your concerns to God in prayer. As we were singing just a few moments ago, when we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed and the day is half done, when we've reached the end of our earthly resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. So lean hard, lean hard, lean on the everlasting arms. And that's great advice for us. Now, of course, we need to be a little bit careful here. There were many childless women in Israel, no doubt, at the time of Hannah, whose prayers weren't answered. You need to remember, of course, that both Hannah and Samuel have a unique role to play in God's unfolding plan of salvation. But yet Hannah is still a good example for us in the way that she comes to God in prayer. Where do we go in the seemingly impossible circumstances of life. Well, God encourages us in uh, Psalm 55, verse 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. Or in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5, uh, verse 6 and 7, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Um, I was reading this last week about the example of somebody called John Payton. So uh, John Payton was a missionary in the 1800s to some of the South Sea Islands. And when he first arrived there, um, everything in his life began to go wrong. Um, First of all, his wife and his son died within a year of arriving. Then the people to whom he was uh, ministering blamed him for a drought that was affecting them. Uh, After that, they also blamed him for a plague of measles, which had broken out and that killed some of the islanders. And then finally, they surrounded his house to try and kill him. They burned his possessions. They uh, burned his mission station, and he only escaped by basically sprinting away and hiding up a tree. 
And uh, afterwards, uh, he said these words. He said, um, never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak so soothingly to my soul. In the darkness, I cried to him and told him all my heart. I would have gone mad, but with my trembling hand, I grasped the hand that was nailed to the cross for me and that now grips the scepter of the universe. Hopefully you can begin to see what John Payton is saying there. When things get desperate, he's saying, grasp the hand in prayer that was nailed to the cross for you. Um, we see Jesus' great care for us. We see Jesus' compassion for us on the cross. And John Payton here is uh, inviting us to grasp that hand in prayer, the hand that was nailed to the cross for you. And of course, we know that um, Jesus is now in control of the whole uh, universe, that that hand that was nailed to the cross is also the hand that grips the scepter of the universe, uh, the one who is reigning now. I'm not sure what seemingly impossible situations you are going through this morning. Um, maybe like Hannah, it is childlessness. Uh, maybe it's a debilitating illness. Maybe it's long-term unemployment. Maybe it is a family member who seems far from God. And these things are casting a dark shadow over your life. But I do know that God cares about those things, and God really wants you to bring to them in prayer, like we see Hannah doing here. Uh, he wants you to grasp the hand that was nailed to the cross for, for you. Cast all your cares on him, because he cares for you. And so we see that God raises up a leader from a woman who weeps and a woman who, who prays, but then uh, Last of all, we also see a woman who rejoices. And this uh, really takes us into the heart of uh, Hannah's great song in chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. This is really the heart of this passage, and it's really the heart of the uh, whole book of 1 Samuel as well. It sort of really sets out the uh, agenda and the themes for everything that follows. And so uh, chapter 2, verse 1 um, then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. Uh, in the Lord my horn, which means my salvation, is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, uh, for I delight in your inheritance. The blues are gone, and now Hannah rejoices in the Lord. Why does Hannah rejoice? Well, as we begin to draw things to a close, uh, a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, a son has come. Uh, and this takes us back into chapter 1, really, to pick up the rest of the story. Uh, after she prays, Eli blesses Hannah, and then she goes home with her husband Elkanah and conceives. In the course of time, she gives birth to a son called Samuel, uh, who she eventually dedicates to the Lord in the house of God, exactly as she had earlier promised. And so she praises God. Uh, she speaks in terms of a great deliverance or salvation. Uh, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. Uh, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. In verse 3, she says that um, God knows 
Uh, the Lord is a God who knows. Uh, God saw what she was like when she was in her misery and her grief. God knows your circumstances, and he is able to act. Uh, we see this spelt out in more detail in verse 4 to 8. The Lord acts decisively, remember, to upend the expectations and values of the uh, world. If we sort of uh, um, skim through it, uh, those who look strong are made weak. Uh, those who are weak are made strong. Those who are full now will go hungry. Those who were hungry will be those who are filled with food. In verse 5, the one who was barren now has seven sons. Uh, the one with children pines away. Verse 6, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. It's all about the great reversals which God brings. Hannah rejoices. She was barren, but she has now given birth. Does God care? Well, yes, God cares about Hannah, but more than that, God cares about his people, Israel. He has raised up a leader for them. Hannah's little boy, Samuel, would grow up to be a prophet and a priest and one who would anoint kings, uh, one who would speak God's word to them and would lead them to victory against their enemies. And so Hannah rejoices in the birth of a son, but then we also see that she rejoices, number two, because of the coming of a king. We see this in the great climax to her song in verse 10. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Almost certainly here, Hannah speaks much more than she knows. There have been hints of this before, that one day God would bring about a king to rule over his people. But for the very first time here, Hannah makes it really explicit. This is the first time in the Bible that the idea of God's coming king is linked with the idea of him being the Messiah. Uh, the word translated anointed here is, of course, the, words, the, the word where we get the words Christ and Messiah from. So here we have a promise that God would one day deal once and for all with the leadership problems of his people, not just by an earthly king like King Saul or King David, but by a heavenly king, one who will come from him, called Jesus. See, the prayer of Hannah here contains not just the great theme of one Samuel, which is the coming of a king, but actually the great theme of the whole Bible, uh, how God will deal with our systemic and fallen leadership crisis and our greatest need by bringing King Jesus into the world. Many years later, of course, God would choose another young woman from a small town and an insignificant background to bring about a miraculous birth. She was called Mary. And when she sang about what God had done for, for her, she used a lot of the same words of Hannah's song here. So Luke 1 and verse 46 to 49, Mary sings, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And then she goes on using all this, the same themes and many of the, the, the same words that Hannah does here to speak of how God has raised up a, a king for us in Jesus Christ, something that was fulfilled by the son who she would give, give birth to and how God has upended uh, the expectations of the world. The humble have been exalted 
the poor and those who are self-reliant in their own eyes have been brought low. For us this morning, the application is that we should rejoice. What was in the future for Hannah is, of course, in the past for us. We know that God cares because he has raised up a leader for us in Jesus Christ. And God calls us now to trust in him, the leader who God has provided. We can look back and see evidence for God's care when Jesus died for us on the cross. And this encourages us to all the more bring our cares and concerns to him, even in the seemingly impossible situations of life. We are to grasp the hand that was nailed to the cross for us. In a couple of moments, uh, we'll come to communion together when we remember God's leader, Jesus Christ, and the death that he died for us. Reflect this morning on your need for a leader. The Bible teaches us that we are naturally lost and we are naturally without hope apart from God. Is that how you see yourself this morning? Let's pray that we might see how much we need Jesus to be our leader in our lives. We are weighed down by sins. We are languishing under God's judgment. But yet Jesus is the leader that we all need. He is the one who has died for us and he is the one who calls us now to trust him with our lives. God raised him up from an unlikely situation, just as he did here with Samuel. What about us as a church? Well, just as we need to trust in God's leader uh, individually, so we also need to trust in God and rely on his leader as a church. And the story of one Samuel helps us to do that with confidence. We know that God cares about the leadership of his people and God can be trusted. And in Christ, he has provided the leadership that we all need. And so let's fix our eyes on him, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Um, I began earlier on by talking about the book Command and the fact that soldiers really care about who their generals are. If you're going into battle, you want to know that the person who is leading you can be trusted and that they care about you. Get a bad general and you know that the outcome for you will be bad. See, the quality of your leaders determines the course of your life. If that's true with soldiers in battle, how much more is it true when we come to the spiritual realm? Who we follow spiritually determines the course of our lives and even our destination in eternity. How encouraging it is to know that God cares about who we follow and that he has provided the leader for us in Jesus, who we all need. A leader who forgives us when we fall, a leader who guides us when we are lost, and a leader who will be with us even in, in death and will one day take us home to glory. And so the gospel really is great news. I pray this morning that this passage from 1 Samuel encourages you that God cares and that God has provided you with the leader that you need in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to give thanks for the fact that you care about us and that in Christ you have provided the leader that we all need. We pray that you might help us to trust in him 
And especially this morning as we come to a time of communion, um, rejoice that you have uh, provided for us in the greatest way that, that we all need it by providing deliverance from our sins. Uh, help us to follow Jesus closely in this coming week and uh, be with us now as we come to a time of communion. And uh, we ask all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.